Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Regina. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Metastatic Prostate Cancer, Current Treatment Advances. And today's program is, uh, is, is supported by Pfizer and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And uh, we're delighted um, to have the, that support. We also have many of you on the call today. There's over 250 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, Ghana, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you're spending the next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service at the Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Wall College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven will be addressing an overview of advances in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID, seasonal flu, and RSV, the role of precision medicine, including new and emerging treatments and targeted treatments for metastatic prostate cancer, and the role of chemotherapy. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's always a pleasure to join you for these conferences. So I'm charged with speaking uh, a great deal in a very short period of time about the relationship uh, between flu and COVID and respiratory syncytial virus and how they could possibly impact on your care. And I'm just going to say nothing really in greater depth other than everyone where it's appropriate should receive their annual flu shot. They should also receive their COVID booster because frankly, we are seeing people who have only had the first two immunizations, and that goes back a while ago, and they are now getting COVID. Thankfully, they're not sick. The advent of Paxlovid has helped many a patient, but it's absolutely unreasonable to my thinking that people would not do something that would help them during a possible infection with COVID. I don't take the lead on making the recommendations for the respiratory syncytial virus or RSV vaccine, uh, largely because I think if patients are... Uh, have a history or have been smoking for many years, they have chronic bronchitis, they have lung issues, very bad allergies. I think a decision for whether or not RSV immunization is probably best made by their primary care doctor, their internist, their pulmonologist, uh, because that person really knows the intricacies of their uh, pulmonary problems. So while we hear on the news everybody over a certain age should get it, I think it should be really based on a very thorough discussion with your primary care doctor. 
None of these immunizations will affect your getting chemotherapy or any treatments. There's no concerns about interaction. And for the most part, they are very well tolerated. So I'd like to address some of the updates that are now in the world of prostate cancer. Please be advised that chemotherapy, which we always think is the big C and probably scares most patients when they hear the word, is actually a treatment that is used at the time of diagnosis, meaning for patients who may have disease that's already escaped the confines of the prostate, and throughout literally the entire cycle of the disease and its progression over the course of months to many, many years, meaning that we can use it any old time what we want. Uh, it's nothing to be fearful about. The treatments are safe. And just about every treatment that you are now getting, whether you have localized or locally advanced or you've had radiation and we give treatments with uh, radiation, uh, if you have disease, it's metastatic. All of these treatments are life-prolonging and in many cases improve quality of life. For the patient who presents with metastatic disease and has had no treatment whatsoever, the standard of care still remains androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, that is the main platform on which we build. And while we don't use androgen deprivation therapy alone anymore, unless somebody is extremely frail and there are other medical reasons not to do so, there's at least six other approaches on which we can build such that it's really up to the doctor and or the patient some time to decide how to best proceed. So in addition to androgen deprivation therapy, many of you already know that we have uh, what we call androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. The other name for it is novel hormonal agents. That includes enzalutamide, apalutamide, abiraterone. That has been shown to really be very effective for patients. They're oral medications and somewhat of hormones, but have very unique mechanisms of action that have been very, very effective. Fast forward, we've actually found that giving chemotherapy along with hormonal therapy has also uh, shown significant improvement in certain parameters and that is also very effective and improves pain and quality of life. However, there has been in the last year or so a uh, an inkling toward more of an intensification approach. This is not new. If you think about intensification, if you go back about 10, 15 years, people postulated that if they added a variety of different uh, either hormonal agents at that time, and we were very limited along with some agents that were used to control urination maybe and, and hormones, that we could get maybe a better response. And people were trying to use alternatives along with standard of care drugs. And we really didn't have very good data. And the reason we didn't have good data is that the drugs were not that great. However, we now know that if we give with androgen deprivation therapy, a combination of abiraterone and docetaxel, which is a chemotherapy, or androgen deprivation therapy plus the hormone darolutamide, also with chemotherapy, we're actually seeing very, very durable responses and quality of life. Why do intensification? Well, there are patients who have very aggressive disease, at least in 8, 9, or 10, what we call high-risk disease. doesn't mean high risk of death, just high risk of disease relapse. And therefore, in some cases, if somebody presents with a very significant amount of disease in the bone or the lymph nodes or other areas, 
you may just want to whack it as hard as you can, hence the term intensification. A lot of people say, uh, depending on what meeting you go to and depending on the circumstances, that you know, don't even bother doing chemotherapy alone anymore because an intensification approach is probably the best of all. I'm not so sure I would agree with that. In fact, I don't agree with it because we do have patients who have a variety of medical conditions and medications that sometimes do not uh, gel or are not compatible with the approach that we're using, either because of toxicity or potential toxicities or because they are just very clinically frail and it would be a problem for these people to tolerate the treatments. But for the most part, it's well tolerated. More recently, you may have heard about precision medicine, and we sometimes call it personalized medicine, although in some ways it's one size fits all, but there is significant overlap with a lot of people. It's an approach to try to tailor medications to fit a either a genetic alteration uh, in the cancer or in heredit in your hereditary what we call germline meaning your the, the cells that are in your body that give rise to your your kids for example uh, or we are looking at um, looking at drugs that can behave very uh, uniquely when they're given in combination so you've uh, heard of the BRCA family, which stands for breast cancer genes, BRCA1, BRCA2, and we now know that patients who have that uh, will have a very personalized approach with a family of drugs called the PARP inhibitors. It stands for phosphoadenosine ribosyl uh, phosphatase, and essentially what it does, uh, the cancer cell has particular chemicals within its uh, body that essentially repairs any destruction that we could induce through chemotherapy or, or radiation. And what the PARP inhibitors do is they don't allow those chemicals or enzymes to repair. Therefore, we are going to try to kill the cancer by not allowing it to repair the DNA. So we now know that there have been several trials that have left have led to the approval of a combination of some of our standard of care drugs, meaning the uh, abiraterone and zalutamide, for example, in combination with these PARP inhibitors, uh, olaparib, talizaparib, and niraparib. And it seems that these combinations have been extremely helpful for patients who have these mutations, and they're now being looked at not only in the castration resistance setting, but even as a first-line setting. Now, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with so many new options. Keep in mind that when you, are, when you have newly diagnosed prostate cancer or your prostate cancer returns, it's really important that you undergo what we call germline testing, which allows us to determine are there any genomic alterations to which personalized medicine could be directed to help you. The second is that every time your cancer changes or you do not respond to the current agents, it also would be very helpful to have a biopsy of a lymph node or a bone biopsy and see has this cancer changed from what it was expressing originally to something novel for which this precision medicine approach would be reasonable.
So unfortunately, I have to stop right now, and I can certainly answer questions later, but I think there is so many new treatments out there now that, as I say, every year or every couple of months when I do this, that no one really needs to be stressing because there's always there seems to be something for everyone. And with that, back to you, Carolyn. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slevin. That was really a wonderful, wonderful presentation and um, stellar, and you really set the tone for today's program. I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A, so, so thank you so much. And um, our next um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Victoria Brennan. Dr. Brennan is a radiation oncologist, assistant attending radiation oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Brennan will be addressing the role of radiation in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, the types of radiation treatments, including the role of radiation, treatment for bone metastases and bone pain, and the role of clinical trials, how research offers additional treatment options for the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brennan. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to be here today, and I really appreciate the invitation. Um, as Dr. Messner outlined, I'll be discussing the role of radiation for metastatic prostate cancer. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll weave into my talk really where the clinical trials have redirected um, the use of, of radiation for metastatic prostate cancer and, you know, allude at the end of my, my talk uh, where we're going and, and how we can continue to further hone our treatments. Um, but by far, you know, the commonest type of radiation used for metastatic prostate cancer is external beam radiation, and that's by and large, you know, what we use across the board. And, you know, what, when you think about what radiation is, it's high-energy X-rays, so the same type of X-ray that you um, undergo when you have a CT scan or just a plain X-ray of, of a bone. Um, and another term for this is photon beams. And we direct these beams or these X-rays at the lesion in question in order to deliver uh, radiation dose and, and um, cause uh, destruction of the cancer cells. And what we know about prostate cancer is the most common place that it travels to is the bone. And the most common symptom associated with a bone lesion is pain. But not only that, um, a lesion in the bone can increase the fracture risk, particularly on a weight-bearing bone such as the femur, or it may result in numbness or weakness if it is associated with nerve or um, spinal cord compression. And so it really is imperative that we have a um, good option for, um, for this uh, scenario. Thankfully, um, uh, prostate cancer, even when it's metastasized to the bone, can be very sensitive to radiation, and typically it can be managed over five to ten treatment sessions. And this approach, you know, is called um, conventional palliative radiation. And typically, the treatment doses needed for pain control tends to be less than that dose that is used for primary prostate radiation. And so, uh, you know, it can be done using very simple radiation plans that can be turned around and initiated very quickly according to the clinical urgency. And what's worth noting here is that the goal in this scenario is to alleviate the pain and reduce the potential compression of the tumor on a nerve or, or whatever uh, the tumor may be doing. Um, so patients undergo a preparation scan called a simulation, and this is a, a CT scan as well, where the patient is in the treatment position, thus typically lying on their back. Um, and this is an essential step for creating a customized radiation plan um, that will you know, be very accurate, but also minimize potential side effects related to the radiation treatment. Um, and during treatment, patients there are awake and lying flat. Um, each treatment is painless and lasts about 10 to 20 minutes. 
Um, but of note, um, you know, a, a relief of pain following radiation is not instantaneous. It may take around two weeks before the patient begins to see benefit. And in fact, it may take up to 12 weeks before maximal benefit is seen. But thankfully, as I mentioned earlier, um, prostate cancer um, disease is quite sensitive to radiation and up to 80% of patients will see improvement or complete response in their, in their pain symptoms when they get this type of treatment. Now, moving on from just, you know, treating and palliating uh, painful lesions, over the, the last five to 10 years, there have actually been a number of clinical trials that demonstrate that there may be a role of um, targeted radiation for, met for metastatic prostate cancer, not just for pain control, but, just, but to actually improve overall disease control and to limit the development of new sites of disease and may even extend overall survival. And so we know that two, two prostate-specific studies show that you know, patients who had recurrent disease following prior local prostate radiation treatment or surgery, um, if they had only developed uh, disease in a limited number of sites, so this is a disease state known as oligometastatic disease, um, and that typically involves less than five sites of, of disease, then targeting these sites could improve PSA control, could limit the development of new sites. And, you know, in a larger study, again, that included all types of cancer, it actually translated to a survival benefit too. So as I mentioned, it's a big departure from just using radiation for pain control. This is a scenario whereby we're actually using it to treat the overall disease state. Um, and these, these uh, disease uh, states are often asymptomatic and, and found you know, when we um, employ advanced imaging, such as, you know, specific PET scans or CT and, or MRI scans. Uh, and the goal of this treatment, really, it's, it's tumor um, eradication uh, to the best of our ability. And, and therefore, as I mentioned, we really like to, to do this to just a limited number of sites. And typically, you know, we limit this site to less than five discrete lesions throughout the body. Um, and in order to be able to deliver such um, uh, an ablative dose of radiation, we're able to uh, take advantage of major advances in our radiation technology uh, that increase the amount of radiation that we can deliver safely in each session and reduce the overall sessions of treatment. So from the five to 10 treatments that I described previously to you know, treatments in as few as one to three sessions. And this technique is called stereotactic body radiation, or SBRT. Another term is SABER, which is stereotactic ablative body radiation. These are all used interchangeably, and it's essentially a highly precise technique. Um, it involves precise patient immobilization and custom molds. And for improved accuracy in the delineation of the, of the target, we often obtain you know, additional imaging, such as focal MRIs or, or CT myelograms that define, you know, where the tumor is in relation to the spinal cord, um, and that we, we use them as well for our radiation planning. And so by using, you know, intense modulation of that radiation beam and by additional imaging of the patient during each treatment session, we're able to deliver such high, high doses of treatment. Um, and it's also worth noting one of the differences between this type of treatment and the more traditional or conventional palliative radiation is that it can also take a bit longer to del deliver each session. It may take about 40 minutes or so, which is always 
um, something worth noting because we want to ensure that patients are as comfortable as possible and if they've got any baseline symptoms or pain, we need to manage these in advance of, of initiating the treatment. Um, and so we talked about, you know, treating the, the area, the parts of the, or the bony lesions, um, you know, the, the metastatic sites. But what about patients who present with metastatic prostate cancer? So, you know, from the very beginning, we know that they have disease in their prostate gland, but on imaging, when we did a PET scan, we found that there was, you know, areas lighting up in the spine and maybe at one of the bones as well. So a limited number of, uh, of sites of disease. And, you know, as, as Dr. Slovin alluded to, you know, androgen deprivation therapy um, would, would typically be, be utilized in this scenario. And um, historically, you know, we wouldn't ever consider radiation at this point in time. Um, but we do have new information from clinical trials, most notably the Stampede study, which showed that in patients who had a very limited amount of metastatic disease, by directing radiation to the prostate gland, which is the primary site of disease where all of this problem is coming from, and that, can, that too can improve um, the survival outcomes um, as opposed to the more traditional treatments. And so this is also a scenario whereby we are utilizing radiation in the setting of metastatic disease to actually treat the prostate gland itself, even when we know it has spread beyond the gland. Um, and so typically this is also delivered using the technique I described, the stereotactic body radiation treatment, although um, your radiation oncologist may recommend a more protracted course of treatment, just depending on the overall clinical scenario. So looking ahead, there does remain a few unknowns, you know, about whether uh, this approach, you know, directed radiation at the prostate gland alone or treating these metastatic sites, even when they're asymptomatic, but at a, a low burden volume of disease. Uh, we don't know whether it's advantageous in the setting of the more modern um, systemic treatments that Dr. Slovin alluded to. So the second generation androgen deprivation um, or androgen receptor inhibitors. And so this is where a lot of the ongoing research is happening. We have a lot of ongoing clinical trials evaluating the combination of metastasis-directed SBRT uh, with hormonal agents and also with other agents such as radiopharmaceutical um, therapies. Um, and, and these therapies are actually radiation, radioactive products in themselves that are injected into the body and are taken up by uh, the, the bony lesions or uh, by uh, metastatic sites, wherever they may be in the body. And these studies will be key in determining the optimal um, treatment so that we can you know, continue to extend patient survival but also ensure that we're maintaining quality of life and we're not exposing patients to unnecessary or unhelpful treatments that could add to the overall toxicity. So at this point, I'll stop and I'll just to summarize, radiation, it remains a highly effective treatment um, for, for metastatic prostate cancer, both in the symptomatic setting, but also in the very early stage of disease. And with future trials, we hope to be able to extend this in indication. Um, there are lots of treatment options available to patients, and the appropriate selection really is determined by the, the disease burden and also patients' baseline symptoms. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Brennan. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful review of the role of radiation, really quite um, extensive and comprehensive review of this. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but that was a, just an outstanding, a stellar presentation as well. Just thank you. This is really wonderful. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Roth, and Dr. Roth is Emeritus Attending Psychiatrist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, 
Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Professor Emeritus of Clinical Psychiatry, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Roth will be addressing strategies to deal with metastatic prostate cancer and tips to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, neuropathy, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roth. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the invitation to be part of this important workshop. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you this afternoon. I'm a psychiatrist who until recently worked with men with prostate cancer and their families for almost 30 years. I wrote a book to help people cope with a prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment. And though some men resist psychological help, many do not, especially when it's recommended by the oncology team. Getting psychological help doesn't mean you're crazy but it may facilitate better accommodation to a changing life, as well as better communication with doctors, family, and friends, and therefore, perhaps better outcomes. It's difficult and challenging to go through the physical and emotional changes related to metastatic prostate cancer and the treatment of that cancer and possible side effects, changes that may be unpredictable. Though metastatic disease may mean no likelihood of cure, it does not mean imminent death. If the prostate cancer is initially diagnosed as metastatic, a man may feel like he's lost the opportunity for a cure, as well as the long life that he may have been looking forward to. Men can feel equally despondent if they go through treatment for early stage prostate cancer and find out down the road that the cancer progressed anyway. In both situations, men may grieve for what they've lost or fear what they will lose. The fear or concern that every new pain or symptom may be a harbinger of the cancer returning or progressing or potential death is quite common. These symptoms may be ignored or downgraded as just getting older, though they may paralyze a man's usual activity. It may be hard to accept and cope with these changes. After all, it may not be clear whether these changes are temporary or permanent. It may be difficult to identify these changes to try to manage them, and perhaps to adjust to and accept a different quality of life. It can be difficult to accept some of the side effects of hormonal uh, therapy commonly used in prostate cancer, and as you've heard, metastatic prostate cancer uh, as well. But um, these hormonal agents can have an impact on sexuality by causing loss of libido, difficulty with erections. It can also cause fatigue, hot flashes, and sometimes cognitive slowing. Some men just don't feel like men anymore. Many men get upset that they no longer feel in control of their own destinies. They can help an all or none, they can develop an all or none perspective of I'm either gonna beat this cancer or I'm dead. They may spend countless hours with Dr. Google searching for new treatments rather than relying on their expert physicians. Life, then becomes only about the cancer. Sometimes the elephant in the room is acknowledging a fear of dying. Thinking about mortality does not necessarily mean you're depressed. However, viewing the future as either having long life or death and inadvertently giving up on the potential for any joy may be part of depression or actually lead to depression. Some men feel weak or embarrassed by these changes and they don't want to talk about it. Whether it's about pain or fatigue, loss of sexuality or other symptoms that they can't easily overcome. 
Some men don't want to discuss these issues and fears with their partners or even with their oncology teams, so they may passively communicate their feelings about these issues through complaining, irritability, social isolation, and avoiding family and friends because they can't do what they used to do, and they are angry. Sometimes it can be helpful to think about what you might recommend to a friend if he were in your situation. Would you want him to feel so embarrassed or depressed about his illness or situation that he suffered with it alone? Or would you want him to avoid uh, getting relief because he was afraid of possible medication side effects or that it would make him look weak to take a medication something for fatigue or something for pain. As Dr. O'Donnell will discuss a little later, some of these issues may be easier to address in a telemedicine visit and some harder. When a man has pain, a video visit without a commute into the doctor's office can be a blessing, but sometimes an in-person visit is important to better assess the extent of a problem and to assess to what extent treatments are working. Family may be concerned that you're not doing much or enjoying much of life and that inactivity and isolation can get in the way of getting better. Physical therapy and massage can improve many of these symptoms and some medications given by the oncology team or a supportive care team and sometimes by psychiatrists can help fatigue or pain, anxiety or depression. And if you can do more with few or no side effects, it may be a good trade-off and a good balance. When it comes to activity levels in someone who has discomfort, I encourage patience and mild persistence and taking breaks. I like to say, start low, go slowly, but go. Something is often better than nothing. Think about managing these issues one step at a time. This is often a matter of tweaking rather than making wholesale changes. Maybe 30 minutes with your grandchildren is better than none, even though you used to play with them for hours. Though you may not appreciate your predicament, you have an opportunity to be a realistic role model, to teach your family and friends how to deal with a very difficult and sometimes demoralizing life circumstances. Think about rearranging social engagement to allow for your decreased stamina or increased discomfort. For instance, it's okay to go to half of a concert or to streamline church services or to just walk up and down the block, even for someone who used to jog regularly in the past. With adjustment, some engagement and enjoyment is more likely and usually much better than none. Exercise, meditation, learning relaxation exercises, going to lunch, or an abbreviated museum visit with friends can be enjoyable. Some of these activities can be done together as a couple. You can find lots of free videos online for easy yoga and other exercise, stretching, or meditation classes. Many cancer centers have integrative medicine departments that can offer these services as well as acupuncture and massage for both patients and partners. Maybe to be a nice activity to do together. And finally, psychotherapy can be helpful for both an individual and for a couple to figure out how to better manage the intrusive, unwanted changes in your life that metastatic prostate cancer may bring, and to deal with the looming human issue of mortality as you strive to live as good of a life for as long as possible. Thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roth. That was an outstanding presentation, just um, very, very informative and very helpful to our participants. 
um, you bring a unique perspective um, that really will help people um, to cope with um, their metastatic prostate cancer and to and to and to kind of live their lives. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell, and Dr. O'Donnell is clinical director of early detection and prevention of cancer, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, assistant professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing the importance of lifestyle, quality of life, and physical activity, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here today to be able to talk to you about the importance of lifestyle, of quality of life, and physical activity as part of cancer care. In addition, I'll be discussing how to make the most and optimize um, some of your visits, particularly those uh, using telemedicine. Um, we appreciate that cancer is extremely challenging on a number of fronts, and sometimes um, aspects of prostate cancer can involve the bones uh, and limit some of your activity. So we really want to focus on the importance of, of staying active and preserving function um, so that you can enjoy quality of life um, and really feel as best as you can possibly feel as you go through your cancer treatment. Uh, a lot of us have exercised throughout our life, and that can mean different things to different people. Patients who have metastatic prostate cancer may have limitations in terms of what they can and can't do um, based on whether or not the prostate cancer is uh, involving um, the bones themselves. And this is an important conversation to have with your oncologist. If you're thinking about exercise or if you want to start exercising, um, please start by talking about that with your doctor so they can advise you as to whether or not that's safe. If you are safe to exercise, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do to stay active. Um, some of the therapies from prostate cancer can affect um, your muscle mass when, if you take away testosterone. So it's really about preserving functionality um, and you know, whether it's dedicated exercise, it, you know, it doesn't need to be running or biking or doing anything like that. It, it can also just be about staying active, um, trying to do the things you've always done around the house, in your community. Um, very often people will jump in to help take responsibilities off you, but I think it's important to be mindful about staying active and continuing to do those activities of your daily living that give you purpose, that keep you moving, um, and make you feel good. And, you know, exercise can come in a variety of forms. Um, it can be going out and walking. It can be gardening. It can be doing things like yoga. Um, and, and all of those will um, potentially help you feel better um, and, you know, can, can improve your quality of life as you go through your cancer treatment. I always say, you know, especially during COVID, when gyms were closed and it was uh, harder to do things outside of the home, just turn on some music and, and, and move around your house. And, 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 you know, that in and of itself is, is exercise. Um, I think it's important to avoid sedentary time. Um, you know, especially with our phones and, you know, all the screen time that we have, we spend a lot of time seated. So to the extent that you can limit the time uh, that you're sedentary and not moving around, even if that means if you're on the phone getting up and moving around, these are small things that you can do that will ultimately 
help you uh, and, and benefit you. In the last uh, minute of our uh, discussion here, I just wanted to touch base about um, telemedicine visits and preparation for those. So time with your oncology team is is important, um, and it often feels like it's too scarce, both on the provider and on the patient end. Um, there are so many things that we would you know love to really be able to spend time on, and I think it's important as you prepare for your visit to make a list of the things that are most important to you to discuss with your provider. We have certain things that we need to do in terms of your safety uh, and your disease assessments, but beyond that, your team really cares about how you're doing emotionally, physically, um, uh, changes in your life. And so if you come to your appointment prepared uh, to discuss the things that are most important to you, um, this really optimizes the value of that appointment both for you and for your team who's really looking to best serve you. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to remember is that your team really wants you to get the most out of your appointments. Um, and I think the best way to do that is is to come ready with what your needs are. And remember that if you are on a virtual visit, you can bring other people in. Spouses who uh, may be in the home uh, are always welcome to join, um, you know, raise their questions and also um, provide information about how things are going. So this has been a quick discussion about some really important factors. I appreciate the invitation to be a part of uh, this this conversation. Thank you, and back to you, uh, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was a wonderful presentation, and um, I think you've given people a lot of tips on how they can stay active um, in a way that they feel um, comfortable. And, and uh, so I think that's just wonderful and great for them also to to turn some music on or just do some activities that just will allow them to be remain active. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is, Dr. is Mr. Jonathan Morrison. Mr. Morrison is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and he'll be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services. He will also be discussing our Hope Line and our website as well. Dr. Messner, for having me here. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here today um, and be with you guys to share a little bit of uh, what Cancer Care offers to individuals affected by uh, prostate cancer. Um, my role here is to provide psychosocial support to individuals affected by cancer in a variety of ways. Uh, today, I'll be talking briefly about how our services can help you manage the emotional and psychological impacts of your diagnosis. Um, a brief overview of cancer care. Uh, we're a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help individuals manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges that are brought on by cancer diagnosis. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. And to become connected to any of Cancer Care services, um, you can call our Cancer Care National Helpline, uh, the number of which will be provided at the end of this session. Um, and you can speak with one of our oncology social workers uh, to let them know what are your current struggles, what are your current needs, and we can assess and provide resources as applicable. Um, when considering uh, your treatment plan um, and, and what treatments you want to seek, whether it's radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, hormonal therapy, um, we believe it's also of 
uh, equal importance to consider how to manage the emotional impacts the cancer diagnosis and treatment will have on you. Uh, seeking these so psychosocial supports and resources such as support groups, individual counseling, or peer support can be beneficial throughout the entire diagnosis and treatment journey. These resources can help you process feelings of shock, uncertainty, and sadness about the present and the future. These resources can also help you identify positive ways to cope with the changes that a cancer diagnosis and treatment brings. And two of our um, uh, resources that I'd like to kind of focus in on today are our online support groups, which uh, provide an opportunity to, for you to share with others who are going through a, a similar diagnosis, um, your experiences, your treatment progress, some of your struggles, and improvements in a confidential password protected message board setting that's available 24-7 for you to read and uh, respond to posts. Uh, second resource is our resource navigation, which connects individuals with our staff who can provide support and helpful resources to meet some of your daily needs. Uh, these services and all of our resources are available on our website 24-7, cancercare.org. Um, here you'll find a variety of educational resources, including past recordings of Prostate Cancer Connect education workshops, publications and fact sheets relevant to your diagnosis, and answers to some common questions asked by those with a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Um, when navigating the emotional aspects of cancer diagnosis, it may also be helpful to become more informed about your diagnosis through asking questions of your treatment team um, if you're unsure of something or unsure of how your treatment is going to proceed, um, as well as the importance of advocating for yourself if you do not feel like your concerns are being heard. And of course, a cancer diagnosis can be life-changing in many ways, um, and though one often finds himself unprepared for this experience, there are many helpful ways to cope and navigate through this experience. Uh, of high importance is seeking to identify your support system and working towards identifying what activities and coping tools may help you through times when you feel overwhelmed, sad, or worried. And I'll, with that, I'll turn it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Mr. Morrison. That was an outstanding presentation and just uh, identifying a really wonderful resource for everybody um, to contact Cancer Care. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to bring, ask um, Regina to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take your questions. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And I believe we have a telephone question. We have a question on the line from Emil Singer. Please go ahead with your question. Good afternoon. Is immunotherapy encouraged for treatment of metastatic prostate cancer? I'm going to go with that. That's mine, obviously. Uh, thank you for the question. The answer is it has not been approved for prostate cancer, either early on or in the metastatic state. It is FDA approved if you have uh, a what we call microsatellite high mutation that is seen in a very small number of cancers, and that's really the only indication for its use but nothing at the present time in any other uh, indications in prostate cancer. Thank you for that question, Yeah, Thank you. Um, and um, 
So another question for Dr. Sloman, how do you determine whether metastatic prostate cancer has become castrate resistant? So the definition of castration resistant is a patient who is currently on hormonal therapy, meaning the injection. When you have the injection, your testosterone level should be less than 50 nanograms per deciliter. So it needs to be less than 50. That's the definition. If while you're on the hormonal therapy, your PSA starts to rise, in other words, it should be less than 0.05. If it starts to rise in spite of that very, very, very low level of testosterone, that is how we define as castration resistant. Now, to try to improve the situation, we often will add on a variety of oral drugs that will sometimes be able to salvage the treatment. So keep in mind the reason that we have people on the injection is to maintain the cells that are still sensitive to the injection. It happens to be the cells that are no longer sensitive that are the ones that are giving us the problems for which we try to treat with a variety of different medications. And even though the medication may work temporarily, still your cancer can be resistant to that medication. So I, I hope that was clear. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Marcus, um, Dr. Slovin, and for Dr. Brennan, when is salvage prostatectomy recommended for men who have recurrence after prostate radiation? It's not my favorite recommendation, and I'm sure Victoria will agree. The salvage prostatectomy means that uh, essentially you have a rising PSA, no discernible, or excuse me, some discernible disease within the prostate, and you are removing the prostate after primary radiation therapy. Many urologists uh, have uh, issues with this because it can cause, uh, well, first of all, radiation can obliterate some of the landmarks that the surgeon needs uh, internally, and it can be uh, accompanied by a fair amount, if not a total, urinary incontinence uh, and is not always curative. So we have found that even with the best surgeon, it doesn't always end up being the best for a patient after having had primary radiation. Victoria, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with everything that you, you just said. Um, and to add to that, you know, um, there are additional therapies that may be a, a better option, um, certainly less morbid. Um, for example, additional salvage radiation and the one that's been most commonly um, utilized is salvage brachytherapy, which is um, not using external beams, but actually implanting uh, radiation sources directly into the prostate gland. And we can, you know, uh, implant them directly into the, the site of recurrence, for example, if it's like a, a one-sided recurrence of the prostate cancer. Um, and that would be my favorite approach if the patient, you know, was, was fit for uh, to undergo the procedure and fit for a general anesthesia. Um, but aside from that, there are still residual options, you know, re uh, repeat um, external beam radiation is, is becoming more, more feasible with, again, you know, not to, to be too repetitive, but our advancing tech technology, um, you know, we have new, tech we have new tools to, to play with, including MRI-guided radiation treatment that certainly improves the accuracy and, and therefore the safety profile of re-radiation. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks very much. Um, and um, 
before uh, Dr. Um, Slovin again can explain the role new biomarkers besides PSA and what are these to help in monitoring treatments? We're, it's an excellent question. You're going to hear a lot about cell-free DNA or uh, tumor, circulating tumor DNA. So essentially the cancer cells have broken apart either as a result of radiation or chemotherapy. And what we often have is that in spite of the damage that the chemotherapy does or the radiation does, there still can be cells that are dying through just natural processes and they leave behind some DNA that can actually be found within the circulation. And it can be very helpful in some cases to try to determine you know, what if there is any residual circulating tumor DNA because it tells us if we've actually cleared the system of the cancer, particularly if radiographically we're not seeing anything, could we find something in the blood that tells us there's still residual disease. The same thing is true, as I'm sure many of you have heard, about circulating tumor cells. I have a patient who uh, every three to six months, we'll check his circulating tumor cells. His PSA is less than 0.05, but then again, he's not a very big PSA maker. And uh, we actually monitor his circulating tumor cells as a more sensitive means. It's not standard, and there can be concerns about the various means by which we use to detect the uh, the presence of DNA. So you've got to be very careful that you're with an institution that has a really very good quality uh, test in order to determine whether or not it's positive or negative. It is not the only quote-unquote biomarker that I use to determine whether or not somebody has responded or their disease has progressed. Uh, there are still, uh, I mean, the other biomarkers really are looking for the presence or absence of, for example, androgen receptor or ARV7. These are biomarkers that can be found on circulating tumor cells as well. But again, that's not the only indication for change in treatment or response to treatment that we look at. We still rely very heavily on imaging. Now, more than ever, PSMA imaging has taken on a huge role uh, due to its sensitivity and specificity, such that uh, if somebody's a good PSMA producer, you can follow response to therapy using that modality. Thank you. Thank you very much. And a question um, for Dr. Brennan. Um, is there any advantage of low-intensity versus high-intensity radiation to treat bone metastases? Thank you. Yes. So, I mean, um, I, get, I think that the, the question means high, high, dose, high doses of, of radiation versus lower doses. And when you deliver high doses of radiation, the chances of, uh, you know, absolute or complete tumor cell kill is going to be higher. Now, the, the downside is any collateral damage or nearby organ you know, uh, damage also goes up. And so it's really vital that the uh, tumor is not adjacent to or you know, to, uh, to a nearby organ or that you can deliver this safely using stereotactic body radiation treatment. Um, so you know, it's for, for when you're trying to achieve complete or local control, high, dose, high doses are more beneficial than lower doses. Um, but this sometimes is not always necessary, um, particularly when, you know, the patient, we, we know they have numbers and a number of sites of active disease. And so by 
you know, getting complete consumer control in one area from a big picture perspective is not going to be super helpful. And therefore, the, the added risk of higher doses of radiation is not quite worth it. And lower doses of radiation are more than enough to achieve our goal of stabilizing the tumor so that it doesn't cause any more damage or, or um, improving and uh, eradicating the, the tumor-related pain. So, you know, higher doses, so just to summarize, the higher doses are better if we want to actually eradicate that tumor. But if there, you know, if this is one of many tumors and it's just causing specific symptoms, then low dose should be sufficient. Thank you. And for Dr. Ben, another question. Please discuss Puvicto radiation infusion. My husband will be considering this treatment at Stanford by meeting this Thursday with the doctor for metastatic prostate cancer in bone and body. Um, thanks. For, you know, this is also a question that, that Dr. Slovin may, may have um, comments on too, because um, although it is a, a radioactive substance, Pluvicto, it, um, it, it, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of considered one of the systemic therapies too. But essentially, um, we attach um, a radio ligand, so P, uh, an antigen called PSMA, which is taken up by PSMA-expressing cells, which is very common in, in metastatic prostate cancer. And this is attached to um, a, a radioactive um, agent called lutetium. And so when those cells um, get taken up this product, it damages and kills those cancer cells. And, and that's how it works. And as a therapy option, it has been licensed and shown benefit in patients who, with metastatic disease who have, I believe, progressed on, on two forms of, of systemic therapy, one including a, a chemotherapy. Um, Dr. Sloven, you may be able to correct me on that. No, you're absolutely right. Thank you, Victoria. So it is really meant for patients who have castration-resistant disease and had had a prior taxane, meaning either docetaxel or cabazitaxel. It's very well tolerated. The administration is intravenous. It's about every six weeks or so. And it has shown life-prolonging effects. Uh, it has shown in some cases, not every single one, a profound decline in PSA. But like every treatment that you can imagine, there is always the potential for side effects. And among the side effects that have been observed, again, not very common, but nevertheless, they are still present. You can have a reduction in your white count, your hemoglobin, and your platelet count. It could be all three or one of the three. Uh, the problem for some people is that with, uh, and this is probably due to the effects of the lutetium, which is a beta emitter, that's the kind of radiation it has, uh, there, there have been accompanied uh, uh, declines in the blood levels to the point that patients could not receive subsequent therapy because their blood counts were much too low. As noted, I think this is probably, it is a rare event. Nevertheless, I think the patients who have had, uh, who have been very heavily pretreated sometimes are at a higher risk. I believe there is one or two long-term follow-ups indicating uh, that patients uh, have developed what we call myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a change in the ability of the red blood cell line to generate sufficient cells. There are changes within the cells, and so people develop a very profound anemia, uh, which could be a prodrome toward getting leukemia. But again, these are all very 
small risks. It, the benefit of the greater good obviously is, is well known and has led to its approval. There is also some new data suggesting that it could be used as a first-line treatment in patients who were newly diagnosed. And uh, so there, there's a lot to come. And this is a, another treatment that is going to certainly improve our armamentarium as we go forward with the disease. Thank you. And um, another question for you, Dr. Sullivan. Is it possible to build muscle with no testosterone? Will high-protein yes. diet help? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you that it, people come in and they, oh, look at me. Look at the muscle wasting in four weeks. I doubt that very much. What uh, my assessment is, is that uh, patients become tired. There's no question you take away your testosterone, you get very pooped. That's, that's just a given. And the older you are, you may be taking beta blockers and a variety of other heart medications that can also contribute to mild or moderate fatigue. And then you add on the lack of testosterone, which gives you robustness. You get tired. The problem is that when you're tired, you're disinclined to do any exercise, ergo, you sit around. And, it, you know, I put my hand on the gentleman's arm the other day, and he said, oh, look at my arm, I'm atrophied. I said, what are you talking about? Nothing has changed. I mean, I could barely get my, you know, a huge bicep. And what it boils down to is just, it's a lack of tone. If you don't use something, it gets very flabby. So I tell people, you know, in the old days, we used to have those five-pound bags of potatoes. Or if you go to Costco, those gigantic peach uh, cans, they just start, you know, moving them around. Uh, Dr. Roth, have you seen people complain about uh, these, these issues when, when they see you? Has this been a, a major issue or a lesser issue? Uh, it is a common complaint. Um, and my recommendations are, as I mentioned earlier, and as you've alluded to, is to trying to stay active. Um, what I've heard, although I don't, uh, under, I don't know the actual science of this, is though it may be hard to build muscle, um, if you're exercising and doing things, you lose muscle much more slowly. Um, and um, so I think trying to do something really is beneficial. Um, even though the fatigue may get in the way of uh, the initiative to do it. But um, as with lots of people with exercise, sometimes you just, you just got to do it. Sounds good. And actually, it almost sounds counterintuitive, but actually it is said that when people are tired, um, exercise is a good thing to do. Is that true? Yep. <laughs> You're speaking to the queen of Pilates. <laughs> That's after 12 hours of clinic, so if I can do it, anybody can do it. Um, so so these are some helpful, hopefully, suggestions for people. Um, I have a question for Mr. Morrison. Um, how do people join an online support group um, at Cancer Care? Um, so our online support groups are, are all listed on our website, cancercare.org. Um, if you go to that website, you can navigate to the top um, where it says support groups, and you can find our support groups under uh, the first tab that says online support groups. Uh, they're all listed there. You can click on them and learn a little bit more about the group, um, how the groups are run. And those are uh, password protected uh, message boards set up. 
um, and you can kind of go in, share your experiences um, with the, your diagnosis and treatment. Um, we have a pretty robust active group going uh, right now, so feel free to uh, join or call our Hopeline if you have any questions on how to register, but you can register right online. And our Hopeline number is 1-800-813-4673, so you can just call that number. You'll be getting all that information also. Um, Survey Monkey evaluation, you'll get that in a couple of days, and it'll have any resources we gave, and even some we may have not mentioned on the call, you'll be getting those as well. Um, thank you. Um, and a question from one of our participants um, for, I, I, I think Dr. Sullivan, I'll start with, what are the newest studies with genetics with prostate cancer? Well, it's not about studies. It's more about the clinical trials. We all know about the BRCA family, and there's a whole family of genes that we know are associated with prostate cancer. And as I alluded to previously, it's very helpful at the time of diagnosis that you undergo tests to indicate exactly whether or not you have something that is what we call germline mutations. Do you carry the BRCA family of genes or any of the other genes for which targeted therapy can be used for you in the future? Now, if you do have a BRCA mutation or something that may put you at risk for prostate cancer, then the next best thing to do is we, number one, send you to a genetic counselor, and then we ask you to have your children also evaluated because of their potential risk, particularly if we're talking about boys, uh, for prostate cancer, or if it's girls and you have a BRCA, then they're at risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And nine times out of ten, nothing needs to be done, no treatment. It's just that they need to be monitored and counseled about, about their risk and the need for mammography or prostate exams, for example. Uh, so this is ongoing, and if you look at the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines, it is requisite that any man who has a family history of prostate cancer, any man who has metastatic prostate cancer at presentation, or has risk factors that would uh, lead one to be very concerned about the genetic history, grandfather uh, with prostate cancer, maybe a grandmother with ovarian cancer, a father who had leukemia or a mother who had leukemia, that automatically should prompt the evaluation uh, of genomic workup, not only to look at whether or not you could pass on these abnormalities to your children, but also to have the tissue profiled, because that is also what we like to, to know about, because there are drugs that can target, as we talked about before, personalized medicine, the, the tissue, in addition to those that are in the germline, as we call it. Excellent, thank you. And I'm going to ask all of our speakers now um, to just take a minute and just um, provide a takeaway from what they've said today. So I'll start with Dr. Slovin, then Dr. Brennan, Dr. Roth, and Mr. Morrison. So Dr. Slovin, so, go first. Yeah, I would say two things. Number one, the concept of dose intensification that for patients who have more aggressive appearing cancers and can tolerate it, the new recommendations include uh, the usual hormonal therapy along with chemotherapy and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. And then just to reiterate what I, I just mentioned, and that is it should be standard practice 
to be evaluated for germline genomic testing and for your tumor to undergo somatic testing. That, to me, is requisite to really get a good picture of what your cancer is doing and telling us. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Brennan. Um, I think my message really will be that, um, uh, you know, precision radiation with stereotactic body radiation treatments, um, it's a really powerful tool. And, um, you know, it, it's, and as, as more and more trials become completed and we get, you know, superior accompanying systemic therapy and um, more advanced imaging and diagnostic technologies, th this power, you know, is only increasing. And, you know, I do expect that it, it, it'll continue to expand um, and continue to play an active role at all, at all stages of, um, at, at almost all stages of, of, di of the disease from early stage to uh, locally advanced metastatic, widely metastatic. And so, you know, radiation, uh, you know, is, is usually part of the treatment paradigm for a lot of patients. And Dr. Ross? Um, I guess uh, my message would be to, uh, it's important to stay active uh, physically um, for your physical health as well as for your um, mental health, but within reason. Um, check with your uh, oncology team about what is safe to do. Um, but I think uh, it's important to, to try to um, uh, have open lines of communication with your physicians about how you're feeling. Be aware of limitations, but not necessarily limited by them. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And Mr. Morrison? Uh, I always recommend uh, individuals when coping with a diagnosis to identify who's in their support system. Um, so two things, identifying who's in your support system as well as identifying how those in your support system can help you and support you. Um, and always letting uh, individuals know how you're doing um, and, and when you need help, you know, reaching out to resources, whether it's someone in your support system or uh, social organizations like Cancer Care. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I want to thank both our participants and our speakers. Our participants really asked great questions today. We've done this program before, but the questions were really wonderful, I have to say. And our speakers addressed them in a wonderful way. So we really had a, quite an amazing program today. And I want to thank all of you who had the opportunity to ask a question. Now, there were many questions in queue that we didn't get to, so I want to comment on that as well. For those of you who had a question, um, and asked your question. For those of you who have a question that was in queue but didn't get asked, and for those of you who have a question that you're thinking about asking, I would, ask, I would suggest that you all take your questions back to your treating healthcare team with the information that you've learned today because you now know things you perhaps didn't know before. And so therefore, or you may have become clearer to you. And so please take that information back to your treating healthcare team and ask your question of your healthcare team and ask it over and over again until you have an answer that works for you, that's helpful to you, that you understand. Also, um, we don't want anyone to feel, leave today's program feeling you're alone. Although it is very tempting to feel alone when dealing with cancer, um, it clearly, um, we don't want you to feel you're alone. Um, so because there's a lot of support out there, a lot of organizations, um, that provides support, both your healthcare team, that consists of many different members of that team, oncologists, radiation oncologists, the um, pain specialists, the um, financial specialists, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, 
um, navigators on the, in the program. There's so many different people in your team that could help you. So never be reluctant to ask your team about a question or concern you have. And starting, if you're seeing your doctor, to let your doctor know you have this question or concern. And they'll connect you to the person on the team that can help you. Um, but also know that there are lots of organizations out there that can help you as well. And we will provide a list of organizations that you can contact as well and resources that you can access as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.